Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, a group of kids were asked the question, if you were king or queen of the world, what would you do? What laws would you make? Here are some of their answers. One kid said, everybody gets a dog, everybody. We'd go to school for two days and have a weekend for five days. We'd switch the week. Schools would have water parks instead of playgrounds. And I would replace sidewalks with jelly slip and slides. Think about that. Christmas would be four times a year. There would be free ice cream in every store and all vegetables would be outlawed, especially spinach surprise. If kids ruled the world, what about you? What would you do if you could design your perfect world? What would it look like? Throughout history, people have been pondering this question, serious philosophers and thinkers. And we call these perfect worlds that people think up in their mind, utopias, utopias. That word comes from a book published in 1516 by a guy named Thomas More. Now, Thomas More wrote this book kind of pretending that there was a guy who traveled to the other side of the world and came back and told More about this perfect society and described it all to him. And in the book, you start to pick up some of the things that More thought were important. So in this ideal country, there are no locks on the doors because there's nothing to steal. Everybody is fed in common dining halls and they can take possessions from a common warehouse where everybody gets their stuff. Everybody lives in communal homes with 10 to 15 people. And uh, every 10 years, people rotate houses so that they don't get bored and they don't get jealous of somebody else's house. Everybody's provided free education to learn a trade. And officials are elected by secret ballot, which was a really radical idea in the 1500s. One of Moore's more unusual ideas was to make all the chamber pots out of solid gold. He thought that if they used uh, gold in chamber pots, it would teach people to despise the greedy acquisition of wealth. I don't need all of this to be happy. Now, you might hear all of this and think Moore's ideas are either brilliant or naive or a mix of both. But one of his insights is one all of us should really pay attention to because it's hidden right there in the name of his perfect society, utopia. He made up this word. You know what utopia means? He used the, the phrase in Greek that means no place, no place. There is no place that is perfect. There has never been a golden age. There has never been an ideal society. In fact, every time someone has tried to create the perfect place, they've done the exact opposite. We have managed to create plenty of dystopias, but utopia is nowhere to be found. Today, we're gonna talk about why that's the case. This summer, our series is called The Big God Story. We are telling the entire story of the Bible from beginning to end, from creation to new creation. And the reason we're doing this is both to help you understand more as you're reading the Bible, the context of what's going on there. But more than that, we think that knowing the big story of what God is doing will help you find your place in that story and will make sense out of your own life story. We think knowing the story of the Bible will help explain the story of your life. Now, today we're going to be covering a number of passages today across the book of Genesis. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. When we last left off, we had Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden enjoying shalom. Now, last week we talked about the meaning of shalom. Uh, Shalom is the Hebrew word for wholeness and harmony. 
It describes what it's like when God, humanity, and all of creation are at peace with one another. And to visualize shalom, we use this chart right here. Shalom has four parts. We talked about how God, it's one part is God's place. God's place. God created a good world. And within that world, God created a space, the Garden of Eden, where he put Adam and Eve, a place of beauty and security. Another aspect of shalom is God's people. God created us for community. He wants human beings to form families and cities and nations and cultures. This is what he desires for us to be in community. Another aspect is God's purpose. God created human beings in his image so that we would rule over his world on his behalf. We were made to be the kings and queens of creation under God. Our job was to steward God's world, to be the servant leaders of creation. And the fourth and final aspect and the most important one of Shalom is God's presence. God invited human beings to know him and enjoy him, to experience closeness to him. This is what makes Eden paradise, the presence of God. This is Shalom, this is Eden. This is what all our hearts long for. This is whether we know it or not, the thing that drives us. This is the way things are supposed to be. And the whole story of the Bible is about how God is bringing us back to Eden, restoring shalom. But before we get to how God does that, we have to ask the question, well, how do we lose it? What happened to Eden? What went wrong? This is where we get to our first point today. What broke shalom is rebellion. Rebellion. In Genesis 2, it says that God planted a garden. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, we gotta talk about these trees. So Adam and Eve have access to the first tree, the tree of life. This is the way that as long as they kept eating from that tree of life, they would remain alive. God was communicating, God is the source of life. He was communicating his eternal life to them. As long as they had access to that, they were, they were stayed alive. That was God's gift to them. But the second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that one was off limits. Look, look at what it says in chapter two, verse 16. God says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, growing up, I had 11 siblings, 11 siblings, which means my entire childhood was one long war over leftovers. Everything, everything in our fridge had a big name on it, usually bold letters so that no one could miss what it was. Because if you didn't label your stuff in the fridge, the piranhas would come and devour it. But if something did have a name on it in the fridge, you did not touch it. You didn't go near it. Oh no, because on the day you ate of it, you would surely die. Was that the situation in the Garden of Eden? Was God saving the knowledge of good and evil just for himself? Like, why would he do that? I mean, knowledge is a good thing, right? God doesn't want us to be dumb. He, He wants us to learn things and grow. And I especially think that the knowledge of good and evil would be something God wants us to have. Like he wants us to know like sharing is good, murder is bad. Like why would he keep that from us? What's wrong with this knowledge? Turns out that's not exactly what the phrase, the knowledge of good and evil means. If you look at how the phrase is used in other places in the Bible, you'll realize that the knowledge of good and evil is not the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. The knowledge of good and evil is the ability to decide what is right and wrong. There's a difference there. It's the difference between a referee and a player. 
So a player in a, in a sport, they actually know all the rules. They know what a foul is, what's allowed, what's not allowed. So they can distinguish between what's right and wrong in the game. And within that, they've got complete freedom to do what they want to do. The one thing they can't do is call a foul. Only the ref can do that. Only the ref can look at a situation and say, that's against the rules. That's wrong. This is how we're going to enforce it. There's a difference of authority between the player and the ref. The, the, the player doesn't have the authority to decide what the rules are or how to enforce them. Only the ref can do that. Th this is how Vaughn Roberts, the author of God's Big Picture, describes it. The knowledge of good and evil refers not simply to knowing what is right and wrong, but rather deciding what is right and wrong. Adam and Eve's sin is that of law making, not just law breaking. They were saying, from now on, God, we want to be the lawmakers in the world setting the standards by which we will live. They were usurping his authority and establishing their independence. That has been the nature of sin ever since. So this is the reason why when the serpent tempts Eve and Adam, he says, if you eat from this fruit, you're gonna be like God because you'll be able to do something only he's allowed to do. You'll be able to set the rules. But it's not just setting the rules, it's setting the agenda. It's taking one part of shalom and substituting it. So instead of God's purpose, we're saying we're gonna serve our purpose. We're gonna build our lives around us and what we want. Instead of saying the world revolves around God, we say the world revolves around me. You do this, don't you? I know I do. I don't, I don't just mean that we break some rules sometime, you know, tell a lie or hold a grudge or gossip or lust or get drunk. Like those are violations of God's commands and they're wrong. But I'm actually talking about the next layer down, the deeper question of why do you do those things? Like we lie because we have based our lives around ourselves. And right now, the, the, the truth does not serve our purposes. So we bend the truth. The, the, the reason we gossip is because we're trying to serve our purposes. And in this conversation, telling somebody else's business serves those purposes. We, we spend money that we don't have because the stuff that we get from it contributes to our comfort and our status and our image and our purposes. That This is where the root of sin lies, setting our own agenda. And when we do this, when we break the rules, when we, we go our own way, we actually redefine good and evil for ourselves. We, we come up with some rationalization to say, you know, I know what I did supposedly is against the rules, but it actually, you know, it was the right thing to do, or at least it wasn't that bad of a thing to do. You know, I, I cheated on him because I just, I wasn't happy in our relationship anymore. And my coworker, he just, just made me feel so alive. But I, I, know, I know I've been drinking a lot, but you, you have no idea how hard my life is right now. And there's nothing wrong with taking the edge off. Look, don't blame me for losing my temper. It's not my fault someone on the internet was wrong. If they stop saying stupid things, I'll stop calling them an idiot. Why are you censoring me? You should be censoring them. We decide what is good and evil. And then we convince ourselves that our attitudes and our actions are not quite as bad as they really are. Why do we do this? Why do we abandon God's purpose and go for our own agenda instead? When the serpent comes to Eve and Adam to tempt them, first thing he does is question the goodness of God's commands. At the beginning of Genesis chapter three, it says this, the serpent said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Did God really say that? The, the point of this question was not the, the factual accuracy of whether or not God said it. It was a scoffing question like, really? Really? He said that? Like that's the rule that he gave you? What, 
what, what kind of person would be thinking that was a good rule? Really? And then he makes it worse than it actually was. It makes it sound worse. He says, did he tell you you can't eat from any tree? Any tree? He won't let you touch any of this stuff? All of this goodness he's keeping from you? How stingy of him. He must not really care about you. He must not love you. He must not be that good of a leader if he's holding all of this back from you, really. So the serpent is aiming at the root issue. He knows the issue is not, do you know the rules? The issue is, do you trust the one who made the rules? Here's the thing. You can think of every command in the Bible as a question. Behind every command that God gives, he's asking the question, do you trust me enough to do what I ask? Do you trust me enough to do what I ask? When God asks you not to repay evil for evil in this situation, when God asks you not to have sex when you're not married, when God asks you to put the interests of another person above your own, God is asking, do you believe that this command that I'm giving you is for your good? Do you believe that my agenda is best for your life and for the world? Do you believe that I am for you, not against you in this? Do you believe that this command comes from my heart of love for you? Do you trust God enough to do what he asks? This is actually what the Bible means by the word faith. Do you trust God enough to do what he asks? The the tragedy of the Garden of Eden was that when Adam and Eve were asked that question, they answered, no, we don't. And all of us in our own ways have answered the question in the same way. We have all participated in Adam and Eve's rebellion. This is where we get to the second point unraveling, unraveling. Sin is the first step in the disintegration of shalom. It's like pulling on the thread of a sweater and watching it unravel as you walk away. Look at what happens here. When we refuse to trust God instead of uh, following his purposes, we cut ourselves off from the presence of God. We walk away from the one who is the source of love and joy, the source of beauty and justice, the source of our identity and our life. And when we walk away from him, we are walking towards hatred and suffering and ugliness and injustice and shame and ultimately death. And this is what happens to Adam and Eve. When God shows up after they have sinned in the garden, Adam and Eve tried to run away and hide from him. It used to be that God's presence in the garden was a source of their joy. And now it's a source of their greatest fear. It's a source of dread. When we are cut off from God, it also cuts us off from other people. Adam and Eve, they're no longer naked and not ashamed with each other. They're no longer open to each other. They they no longer want to be seen by another person for who they are. And they start blaming each other. It wasn't my fault. It was her fault. It was their fault. It was his fault. It was a snake. And it cuts God's people off from God's place. God curses the ground so that it will no longer provide the easy abundance that it used to. People are gonna have to toil and labor and sweat just to have something to eat. And then God literally kicks Adam and Eve out of the place he prepared for them. They have to leave the garden. This is what it says in Genesis 3, 23. It says, the Lord God banished the man from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way back to the tree of life. And as a result of all of this, in many ways, the world was cut off from the presence of God. No longer would those who were made in God's image go out into the world to reflect what he was like wherever they went. 
We're like pipes that were meant to carry water, but we've been cut off from the source of water. And so now God's goodness and love and beauty and justice that were supposed to flow through us, it's no longer coming. That water no longer flows into the world to water it like it should. Now, if you've heard the story of the fall before, this is probably where it ends for you. Adam and Eve walking away from Eden. But it turns out if you're actually reading through the book of Genesis, the story of the fall lasts for seven more chapters. Because it turns out the fall, the introduction of sin, is not just about what happens when individuals sin. It's actually about what happens to communities and to the world when sin is let loose. So let me summarize for you what happens in Genesis uh, 3 through 11, okay? After Adam and Eve are kicked out of Eden, in chapter 4, we have the story of Cain and Abel. Now, this is the story of Adam and Eve's first two sons and humanity's first murder. And the motive for the murder is jealousy. So Cain has fallen short in a way that Abel has not. And he can't handle the contrast between him and his brother. So instead of stepping up and doing better, which is what God called him to do, he decided he would eliminate the comparison by taking Abel out. This is one of the first results of sin, division, even among the closest relationships and violence, even within families. What's really interesting is that later in that chapter, one of Cain's descendants, a guy named Lamech, is bragging. He's bragging about how one time he killed a man who wronged him. You know, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Cain's example sets a pattern for this family so that they don't just commit violence, they actually celebrate violence. The next big story that we have is the story of the flood. Now, this is a familiar story for a lot of people, Noah's Ark, things like that. You might've seen it on a church nursery wall or uh, kids' toys or books or something like that. We use it for kids because it's got a lot of animals in the story. But that's sort of like showing a kid Titanic because they like to swim. This is a brutal, tragic story. It starts with this verse in Genesis 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. God sees the violence and the cruelty of humans. And he says, I'm doing a reset. That the flood is literally the breaking down of creation. In Genesis 1, God separates the the sky and the sea and the land and they're separate areas. But in the flood, all of those divisions comes crashing together and it falls apart. When I was a kid, I I remember times I'd be building with Legos and there'd be times when I'd get into a project and I'd realize, oh man, something went wrong early on. And I have to go back and I have to undo the entire project, fix the thing at the beginning and build the whole thing again. That's what God is doing here. He's undoing the project of creation and starting over with Noah instead of Adam. Now, there are two really notable things about the flood story. First is this, after the flood happens, God makes a promise, it's incredible. He says, I am not gonna destroy the world again. Basically, he says, I'm sticking with this project. I'm sticking with creation. I am not giving up on this. I am going to make this work even if it kills me, which is amazing. The other notable thing is this. Noah, that guy that God brought through the flood, turns out he was a messed up sinner too. The story that we don't tell about Noah right after he gets off of the boat is a story where Noah gets drunk and does something shameful. So so God's got this reset of the flood, but he hasn't, eliminated the root problem of sin in the human heart. And that shows up in the next story. In chapter 11, we get the story of Babel, which is a bizarre story, super weird. Uh, I do not have time to explain all the details, but it's important because it makes sense out of what happens next. Years after the flood, the earth fills up with people again. 
There's a group of people who band together in an area to build a city and the city is called Babel. Now there's something really unusual about the name Babel. It's an incredibly common word in the Bible, but the only place where it's translated Babel is in this passage. Everywhere else it appears in the Bible, it's translated Babylon. Maybe you've heard of Babylon. Babylon was first a city and then an empire in the Old Testament that becomes one of Israel's major enemies throughout the story. We're gonna talk about that in several weeks. But Babylon throughout the Bible gets held up, not just as an individual uh, empire, it's actually kind of the symbol, the representative of all evil empires, full of pride and injustice and idolatry. The the reason here it's translated Babel in this passage is because at this point in the history, it hasn't developed fully fledged into that city or empire that it would become later in the story. But the name is important because it's tipping a hat. It's telling us, here's the root. Here's the root from which evil empires and nations grows. What's happening here is what happens in all of these other places. So here's what the people of Babel are doing. They're building this huge tower. Now, I I can't explain exactly what they're hoping to do with the tower, but I'll tell you this. They were not trying to go up the tower. They were hoping that the gods would come down the tower to be with them. That's the reason why in the ancient world, people would build towers and ziggurats. It wasn't a stairway to heaven. It was a stairway from heaven. What's important though, is seeing their motivation for this. So so listen to what it says in Genesis 11, verse four. The people say, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Look at what's going on here. They are building a city, okay? So they're, they're building a city so that they can be a civilization, a people together so that they can make a name for themselves, so they can build a world around their purposes and their, their identity and their glory. And they want to not be scattered over the world. They want their own place where they're secure and safe. And they're building this tower so that they will have access to the presence of the gods. They're trying to bring heaven down. This is what Babel is. It is a mockery of Eden. It is a perverse imitation of Shalom. It's human beings trying to put this together for themselves. Babel is what happens when a whole culture is built on human rebellion and sin. It's what happens when humans go out into the world doing what they were designed to do, to try to rule over the world, but instead of doing that by building it around God, they build it around themselves. That sin is not just this individual thing. It gets baked into cultures and systems and societies. That this is not just something that happens in some places either. It didn't just happen in Babel. It happens all over the place in every nation, in every culture, even the ones that we're a part of, we all do this. And this, my friends, is the full tragedy of human sin. Your sin is rebellion that spits in the face of the God who only sought to bless you. Your sin cuts you off from the presence of God. Your sin infects your family and undermines your closest relationships. Your sin sets an example that makes it easier for others to sin and causes other people to react with sinful reactions. And your sin participates in the greater sins of your society and culture. Your sin unravels the world. Sin is not just this private matter that if you can keep behind closed doors is no big deal. It all adds to the brokenness and injustice and impurity of the world. In the big God story, we are not the heroes. We are not even the innocent victims. We are the villains and we need to admit that. 
Now, I, I wanna talk about what God does about all of this. We're gonna talk about that in a moment, but I don't wanna rush past this without responding. I, I think it's appropriate for us to take a moment and acknowledge our sin before God right now. So what we're gonna do right now is we're actually gonna sing a song. And as we sing this song, I, I want you to actually bring to mind sin that you need to confess and make right with God. Maybe things that have happened this week or, or recently, attitudes and actions that you need to confess. And as we sing this song, I want you to plead with God for his mercy. Now this is the lowest point. The shalom of Eden has crumbled. Sin has infected God's image bearers. God's creation project has led to a society full of idolatry and injustice. But God has made a promise. He said, I'm not giving up on the world or on people. And so God has got to do something. But what's his plan? What's he going to do? This is where we get to the third point, calling, calling. If you are reading Genesis from start to finish, after reading the story about Babel in chapter 11, if you turn the page immediately to chapter 12, it opens with a story where God is taking the first steps in his rescue plan. So you can imagine this part of the story like a recruiting montage in an 80s action movie. Okay, so the, the music starts like, bump, 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 bump. And so the music's going, you're getting excited. You're like, ah, oh, yeah. And the, the hero's like, for this plan, we're gonna need a team. Bump, bump, bump. And then it cuts to all these places where he's going and visiting these people, the, the perfect expert, the specialist that is gonna have the exact skills that they're gonna need to pull off this job and recruit all the people. And the final scene of the montage, bump, 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 is all of the people coming into headquarters and they all get this final shot of them kind of flexing their muscles and you know, cleaning their weapons and leaning on things looking all hardcore. And it's like, yeah, the team is assembled. This is what God is doing in this scene. He is assembling his team of heroes to rescue the world. But when the scene ends, there are just two people standing there, an old man and an old woman, and that's it. Now, the man and the woman are named Abram and Sarai. And here's what you need to know about them. First of all, when God calls them, Sarai is in her 60s, Abram is 75. By the end of the story, they're both pushing 100. Second thing you need to know is they have no children. Sarah is not able to get pregnant. And you also need to know where they are from. They are from a city called Ur of the Chaldees, which is not that far from Babel. It's kind of in the same country. So knowing that, let's read what it says in Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God, God makes an incredible prom promise to Abram. Let, let's break it down here in a minute. So in verse one, he promises Abram a great land, a great land. Uh, at this point in the story, Abram doesn't know what land in particular God's gonna lead him to. But later on, he says, it's the land of Canaan, the land that becomes Israel, the promised land. You and your descendants are gonna have this land. Then in verse two, it says, I will make you into a great nation, a great nation. Uh, God is not picking Abram and Sarai just for themselves, but he says, be fruitful and multiply to them, just like he did at the beginning of creation. And later in Genesis, he promises that their descendants are gonna be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. So this is not just a blessing for them individually. They are gonna become a whole new society, a new civilization, a great nation. End of verse two, it says, I will give you a great name, a great name. Abram is gonna be known and honored throughout the world and throughout history. 
Now notice the contrast here, okay? The people of Babel are like, we are going to make a name for ourselves. And God comes to Abram and says, let me make a name for you. In a very literal sense, God does this with Abram and Sarai. He gives them new names. He changes them to Abraham and Sarah. Ultimately, in verse three, it says though, that God is gonna use them to be a great blessing to all the nations of the world. Now, how's this gonna help? How will this lead to Eden coming back? Here's how it's gonna work. God has called Abraham's family to be the anti-Babel kingdom. He's called them to be the anti-Babel kingdom. He looked around at all the other nations that human beings had created. And you know what he saw? A bunch of little Babels. Whenever humans tried to build utopia, they end up with the hunger games. None of the nations that existed would serve God's purposes. So God decided he would make a nation of his own, a kingdom that would reflect his purposes, his anti-Babel kingdom. And through this kingdom, God was gonna restore Shalom. Again, look at those promises. Look at the promises. God is going to use his family for his purposes and turn him into a great nation, make him his people and give them a new land, bring them into his place so that he can bless all of the nations with the glory of his presence. This is what God is doing. God is bringing Eden back through Abraham's family. This is their calling. But this calling requires a response. This is the final point. Because the response that God expects of Abraham is faith, faith. And you can understand why this would require faith when you look at what God is offering. Because from a human perspective, this is impossible. That they are old and childless and barren and they are not in any sense of the word gonna become a great nation. They are living 700 miles away from Canaan in a land and Canaan is already occupied with other people. They're not gonna get that land. They are nobodies with no power and no plan and no influence. And yet God is gonna give them a great name and, and use them to bless all the nations of the world. Not a chance. But God did not pick them for their resume. Well, actually he kind of did. <laughs> he, he didn't pick them because they had potential. He picked them precisely because they didn't have potential. He, he didn't pick them because they were promising. He picked them to show the power of his promise. That was the point. If they had already made a name for themselves, they would be another Babel. But God wanted to build something from the ground up, something only he could do. And so Abraham had to respond with faith because otherwise he was powerless. His only option was to trust God. Now, the fact that Abraham was powerless doesn't mean he was passive. His faith was an active faith. When God calls Abram and Sarai, they can't just stay in the suburbs of Babel and hope for the blessing to all work out. This blessing actually requires them to move. They've got to go. And so when God calls them to do that, they do that. Verse four in chapter 12 says, Abram went as the Lord told him to. One of the books that we're recommending for this series to read along with it is called The Epic of Eden. It's by Sandra Richter. And this is what she says about Abraham and Sarah and what they did. She says, take a moment to translate this into your current economic and social situation. Leave your house, your job, your friends, your church, your relatives, abandon your inheritance, a 401k that will not transfer and maybe even the equity in your home and go somewhere where you don't speak the language, you have no business contacts, friends or relatives and trust God to make a new place for you. This is a very tall order indeed. I assure you that most folks in the ancient world and most folks today would not have gone. This action required faith. But Abraham's faith required action. 
Remember how we defined faith a few minutes ago. Faith is trusting God enough to do what he says, to actually do what he says. And this is the key. In the Bible, faith always, always results in new behavior. It has to. I mean, think about it. Faith is shifting your trust. So if you stop trusting in your money to save you, it'll change what you do with your money. If you stop trusting your political party to save the world, don't you think it's gonna change how you engage in politics? If you stop trusting your boyfriend or your girlfriend to save you and to rescue you, to make you whole, won't it change how you act in that relationship? If you trust God to save you, you will do what he says. This is the opposite of what Adam and Eve did, but this is what God is calling Abraham to do, to reverse that. He and his family and the nation that they would become, they are supposed to be people of faith. And faith is still the distinguishing mark of God's people. In the New Testament, it says that even if you are not a biological descendant of Abraham, if you're not Jewish, you're still one of his children if you have faith like he did. Galatians says this, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, his offspring, his family, and heirs according to the promise. God calls his people to do this. Simply trust me. Trust me enough to do what I ask you to. And so this is the question I wanna leave you with. Will you trust God? Will you do what God asks you to do? Now, before we conclude, I I do wanna just recommend one thing that might be an action step for some of you, a way you can express this kind of faith in God this summer. Get baptized, get baptized. You heard us mention before that uh, we're gonna be doing some outdoor baptisms this summer at the pond on the St. Charles campus for people from all different campuses. We're gonna be doing it later in July. I'm not gonna get into the details of how that's all gonna work, but I wanna encourage you, if you have not been baptized, to sign up right away so that you can get in one of the classes and be a part of that. I would highly encourage you to do this. If you've uh, surrendered to Christ recently, or maybe you did a long time ago, but you've just been holding out on this act of obedience and faith to God. This is one of the ways to declare, I trust in God, the one who will save me and lead me. And wherever he leads me, I'm gonna follow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would give us faith, faith enough to trust you, and do whatever you ask us to do. God, give us hope in the shalom that you are bringing in the way you are bringing us back to Eden and restoring your world and your people. Help us to be a part of it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.